Well, go ahead and meet me in Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. Moving this table by myself really bums me out that Caleb is gone. Not that I had to move the table. I miss Caleb. The table being moved is nice. But uh, Acts 16. We do a weird thing at church. We sing corporately. We sing as a group. Um, Unless you were like in choir in high school or in theater or maybe you're like part of a choir now, like we don't sing in groups in our culture except maybe like at someone's birthday, right? So why, why do we sing? We, we sing to praise God. It's my sermon for the day. Uh, the band's going to come back up. It's been good to have you. Um, we sing... Uh, at church, when we sing, we are, we are praising God. We are ascribing to God the worth he is due. We are celebrating who he is and what he does. And as we do this, Scripture says his presence draws near to us. He inhabits the praises of his people. Listen, God is present everywhere. That theological word is omnipresence, that God is everywhere at all times at once. That is true, but there are times in which, moments in which God's presence becomes tangible to us. That's what we call his manifest presence. When we worship, very often his manifest presence draws near to us as he inhabits the praises of his people. Worship isn't entertainment. It might be like pleasing, it might be entertaining at times. But ultimately, worship and entertainment, they're they're distinct phenomenon. They sit, A.W. Tozer says, at opposite ends of the table. He says, the church that can't worship must be entertained. The church that can't worship must be entertained. So we gather not to be entertained, but to encounter God through praise. Because praise, a song I've been listening to says, is the highway to the heart of God. And it's important for us to have all that in our heads this morning because the passage we're going to look at together in Acts chapter 16 is a passage that hinges on praise. It's a passage that hinges on praise. So if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16. The book of Acts is the story of the early church and how it grew from one room in a city called Jerusalem to spread across the Roman Empire of its time. Uh, In this particular section, a guy named Paul is a key figure. Paul is in the city called Philippi. Uh, He got there uh, earlier in Acts chapter 16. We looked at it last week. He's using the home of a wealthy merchant uh, named Lydia. She d- deals on purple dye. He's using her home as a home base. And so in verse 16, we read this. One day, as we, we being Paul, his friend Silas, Luke, and Timothy, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller 
who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. It's good, it sounds like free advertising, except verse 18, this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out. And instantly it left her. Paul and Silas are going throughout the city, uh, preaching the gospel, making disciples, but they are met by this slave girl who has what's called a, a it, it, actually in the Greek, it's a python spirit, like a snake, a pythoness spirit. This is a particular kind of divination or fortune telling that was super common in the city of Philippi at this time. Um, so it's, and because this girl was making money for her masters, it's not unlikely that she was fairly well known um, in Philippi, that as people saw her walking through the city, they had gone to ask her questions and paid her masters to know things. The spirit of divination, spirit of Python, knew things about the future. So there, this slave girl with this spirit is following her, uh, following Paul and Silas around and crying out, hey, these are servants of the Most High God who know the way to salvation. And again, it kind of sounds good. It sounds like it's free advertising. Oh, isn't that great? It's like they have an Instagram influencer kind of bumping them up, you know, in people's likes, and they can, you know, they know this girl, and oh, she likes them, so it must be real. But it's not neutral. It's not even really positive. It's actually interference in what Paul and Silas are trying to do, and we, we get that out of this idea that Paul is exasperated by it. He's not welcoming it. He's annoyed by it, and that drip, drip, drip of annoyance just reaches its kind of maximum, and, to, and so in verse 18, he casts out this demon. And that's certainly a help to this slave girl, but it leads to more difficulty for Paul and Silas, and that's how we know it's spiritual warfare. That's how we know what happens here. It's, it's incited by spiritual warfare. And so we'll come back to this in a minute. But Luke goes on to say in verse 19, I love how the New Living Translation renders 19, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. Those of you who had a lot of money in the stock market in 2007 know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Her master's hope of wealth was now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. Verse 21, they are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. Now, by the way, Verse 21 was almost my whole sermon. What happens when practicing the way of Jesus puts us at odds with the legal practices of our nation? Good news, I can cover that next week because it kind of comes up again. So go on to verse 22. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So he put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Paul and Silas are taken to the marketplace. That's a public place of business. It's not only where we kind of buy the stuff that we need, it's also where we transact public business. And they're placed before the rulers. These are men elected to keep the peace in the city and to enforce the laws of Rome. And Paul and Silas are dragged before the rulers and the crowd says, these men are Jews. You can almost like feel the venom 
dripping off those words. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city in the Roman Empire at this moment. Remember, Paul and Silas aren't back in Judea anymore. They aren't in a predominantly Jewish culture anymore. They're in a predominantly Greco-Roman culture now. They're in Greece. And in Greece, in the Greco-Roman world, then as now, simmering under the surface was this latent anti-Semitism, right? Not only is there this anti-Semitism, there was this, it was uncouth, it was unwanted, it was not quite illegal, but almost illegal for Jews to publicly preach at this time in the Roman Empire. It's okay, you could go be Jews over there, and if people want to become Jews, they can go over there, but don't bring that over here. Further, in verse 22, the Philippian citizens kind of get involved. They start adding accusations. That's because Greco-Romans have a distaste for Jews, but they also have a distaste for what one commentator calls strolling peddlers of an outlandish religion. As a strolling peddler of an outlandish religion, I find that a little offensive. Um, um, I find myself triggered, but I... um, But there was this sense uh, then in the Roman Empire as now that that dude on the side of the road holding a sign that says repent or go to hell is just about as unwanted by you and I as it was 2,000 years ago. The Bible isn't all that old of a book. That would create indignation. And so Paul and Silas are dragged before the Roman court strolling peddlers of outlandish religion such as they are, Jewish strolling peddlers of outlandish religion such as they are, and they're thrown into jail in Philippi. And let's just be clear, prisons today versus prisons there, I mean, the prisons we have now look like five-star hotels compared to the living horror show that was a prison in the first century. And Paul and Silas are thrown into the deepest, darkest, dankest, dare I say, moistest, My wife doesn't like the word moist unless it refers to cake. The most moist part of the prison where there is nothing but rats and disease and the smell of death. Paul and Silas are placed there. And I don't know if you notice in verse 24, it says the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and he clamped their feet in stocks. Stocks um, were a device that would hold a prisoner's feet together, but there were multiple holes so you could spread the legs out as far as you could, as far as painfully. So there are Paul and Silas in the moistest, darkest, ugliest part of the prison in pain. And what do they do? Look at verses 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This whole passage is about to pivot on praise. Watch. Praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul and Silas, their feet bound in these painful stocks, are singing. Jack, our son, he has a children's book of this passage. It's called The Prisoner, The Earthquake, and The Midnight Song. And it's about, can you hear it? A sound, a sound coming from a prison, a prison in Philippi. Is it a groaning sound? Is it a moaning sound? No, it's Paul and Silas. They're singing praises to God. Instead of grumbling, instead of complaining, Paul and Silas are praising. Paul and Silas are praying. 
And there's an earthquake so great that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors of the prison are open. Every prisoner, not just Paul and Silas, every prisoner is set free. And that earthquake doesn't just set these prisoners free. It also wakens out of a dead sleep this Philippian jailer who has, as I like to say, one job. Right? Have you said that too? Well, you've probably said it about someone, haven't you? I give you one job, right? He has one job, which is keep these people in prison, Philippian jailer. And what has now happened? All of these people are set free. He's living in an honor-shame culture where this will bring shame upon him. This will bring shame upon his family. They will be cast out of the city. And so there's only one option left. In Zach's children's book of this, it says there's another sound, the sound of a sword being drawn from its sheath. And it actually gets a little graphic because as he goes to kill himself in Jack's children's book version of this, he's looking at like a child's hand-drawn picture of his wife and children. It's a little gruesome. Jack hasn't really noticed that part yet. Um, And so as he goes to kill himself, look at what happens in verse 28. Paul shouted to him, stop. Don't kill yourself. We are all here. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, and Jack can say this, it's cute, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household verse 32, and they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. Probably, actually, commentators are saying that the Philippian jailer and his family live in like a house that's attached to the prison, right? Short commute, can't beat it. Um, Verse 33, even at that hour, all who lived in his household, even at that hour in the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, And he is an entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. I love uh, one of the church fathers, an ancient Christian, his name is John Chrysostom, says of the Philippian jailer in this moment where he's washing Paul and Silas' wounds and is getting baptized, it says, he washed and was washed. He washed them of their stripes and he himself washed from his sins. It's kind of a cool moment. Paul and Silas are set to go free, but look at what happens in verse 35. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, hey, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave, go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. Cue, dun, 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 right? We are Roman citizens, so now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come home themselves to release us. Um, The city officials um, have a little bit of, what do you call it, like a public image issue on their hands. What do they call it in politics? The president walked back his comments, right? Let's see how the city officials walk back their actions here, because... Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, and citizenship in this time in history, especially in the Roman Empire, it was not a birthright. If you are born in any of the 50 U.S. states or territories, it's the law of the land, 
you soli, you are in that moment an American citizen. That's not how it worked in the Roman Empire. The geopolitical boundaries of the Roman Empire were changing all the time, and citizenship was used as a carrot to motivate average citizens in places they took over. This idea that if you work hard enough and if you earn enough favor with your local magistrate, this, that, or the other, you can be a Roman citizen too. Now, it did pass through birthright, but you can be a Roman citizen too. And the advantage that you had of a Roman citizen was that you uh, had a right to a fair trial. And here are Paul and Silas given not exactly what I would call a fair trial, right? So look at how they respond. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed and called their public relations arm (laughs) um, to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, so they came to the jail and apologized to them. In my mind, I can't help but see, like, they're like, we have this fruit basket, you know, (laughs) sorry. Um, Then they they brought them out of the city, begged them to leave. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, and they left the town. What's happening here in Acts 16 is is Luke is setting a kind of new trajectory and laying a new foundation for what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. Because Luke is identifying new pressure points between the way of Jesus and just the average everyday way of life in Greco-Roman culture. Acts is all about these pressure points. In the first eight chapters, it was all about the pressure points between the old temple and the new temple, the people of Jesus and Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But here, the gospel is now moving into a Greco-Roman context, and there are new pressure points between the way of life for an average Greco-Roman citizen and a follower of the way of Jesus. A commentator says, Luke is not one-sidedly interested in Jewish resistance or hostility to Christianity, Here we see a clash between pagan religion and customs and the Christian faith, and we will see it even more vividly later in Acts. Luke seeks to show that the Roman authorities do not necessarily oppose, or at least ought not to oppose the Christian faith, but both Jews and Gentiles view the mission of Jesus as a threat to the customs that provide social cohesion to the religious basis of other cultures, and to political stability through Caesar's rule. Let me say this again. Both Jews and Gentiles view the mission of Jesus as a threat to the customs that provide social cohesion, the religious basis of their cultures, the political stability through Caesar's rule. In other words, the mission of Jesus as it moves into the Greco-Roman world is a threat to the way of life of Greco-Roman citizens. It is a threat to its culture. And I know that's really, really hard to fathom in some ways because we live in a cultural moment that, thank you, Jesus is ending, where being an American and being a Christian are roughly the same thing. That is not the case as Paul and Silas move the gospel out. It's, by the way, not going to be the case in the next two decades. It will be harder to follow Jesus in the next two decades than it has been in the last five There's hostility. And so faced with such hostility, Paul does something rather surprising. Faced with hostility from these Roman leaders, from these city leaders that throw them into jail, as he's accused of teaching customs and practices that are illegal in the Roman Empire, as the leaders respond to anxious self-interest, which is what you can always count on a politician to do, 
Paul and Silas are thrown in prison as fast as they can. Unfortunately for these rulers, they've thrown Roman citizens into jail, Roman citizens who aren't to be treated this way, which begs this question. Why didn't Paul and Silas just say at the very beginning, uh, in the middle of their trial, hey, time out, guys, we're Roman citizens, you can't treat us this way? And they would have said, oh, goodness, we're so sorry, go about your business. Why didn't Paul and Silas say, yo, as we're being dragged off, guys, we're Roman citizens. As they're being thrown into prison, we're Roman citizens. As their feet are being put further and further, a notch out, a notch out, further and further in pain in this nasty, moist death prison, why aren't they saying, yo, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't treat me this way? Let me tell you why. It's because Paul didn't want the gospel preaching that he did to rest on his citizenship of the Roman Empire. He didn't want to be preaching and then say, I'm a Roman citizen, and then say, oh, okay, well, now we'll listen. He wanted the message to either be accepted or rejected. Paul, in this moment, leans into not his earthly citizenship as a citizen of Rome. He leans into his heavenly citizenship because he belongs to the kingdom of God. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul pens a famous line. He says, but we are citizens in heaven. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. This is why I think the Bible is so interesting, because the church in Philippi, upon reading that line, surely remembered that time that Paul was dragged before the magistrates and his citizenship was called into question. The minute you say yes to Jesus, there is a heavenly citizenship that overtakes, overtakes any earthly citizenship you currently possess. Ironically, we tend to do the exact opposite of what Paul does. Faced with hostility, we leverage the rights and privileges of our earthly citizenship to defend us. Quick, call the Heritage Foundation. Let's get that court up. Let's get that up to the Supreme Court. We got to vote for this person because they share our values and they'll protect us. And listen, we're living in a democratic republic. We have rights and privileges assigned to us as citizens of this country that Paul and Silas couldn't dream of. So by all means, leverage your earthly citizenship in the ways that seem right to you and to your conscience. But know, know, know that when you do that out of fear, when you do it out of contempt for another political party or person, know that when you do it to protect your own comfort, it's actually revealing an idolatry. Because your citizenship isn't on earth. Your citizenship is in heaven. Paul would not, this is what a scholar has said, Paul would not have wanted the reception of the gospel to rest on his claims to Roman citizenship. Furthermore, Paul did not recognize the emperor and his decrees as the ultimate authority over his life. I'm just going to read that again. Paul did not recognize the emperor or his decrees as the ultimate authority over his life. Rather, Christ the Lord was. We are faced with hostility. Instead of turning to our earthly citizenship to defend our rights and privileges, we turn to our citizenship in heaven where Jesus is Lord in life or death. This is what Paul and Silas do. They turn to their citizenship in heaven and they pray and they praise in the midst of pain 
Tertullian, another church father, I love this line, the legs feel nothing in stocks when the heart is in heaven. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. I said this is a sermon about praise. It's about the purpose of praise. And in this passage, we see two purposes. And the first of this is this. The purpose of praise is this. It's how we express our heavenly citizenship in a world gone badly wrong. Praise is how we express our heavenly citizenship when things on earth go badly wrong. Paul and Silas find their earthly citizenship to do them no good. Things on earth have gone badly wrong. And so they praise. Praise is how we express our citizenship in heaven when things go wrong. In the miscarriage, in the grief, in sickness, in the midst of a pandemic, when life is thrown away, when there's despair, when there's hopelessness, when there is grief so profound that it escapes words, praise is how we express our citizenship in heaven. It's how we sing over ourselves our true national anthem. It's how we sing over ourselves our true national anthem when things go badly wrong. Praise is how we express our heavenly citizenship when things on earth go badly wrong. Further, praise is how we weaponize the promises of God God against the schemes of the evil one. Praise is how we weaponize the promises of God against the schemes of the evil one. I mean, look at what happens in this passage. There is spiritual warfare that interlocks with a broken human government that at its core is, rebe- is rebelling against God and it brings them great pain. This is what Paul is envisioning, by the way, when he talks about, like in Ephesians, he says, there are rulers and principalities in the unseen world. He says that government and human institutions that are built of sinful, broken, unregenerate people, their sin kind of pings off one another and creates broken institutions that can then be manipulated by powers in the unseen world. They interlock to the harm of average people and to the way of Jesus. And that's what we see here. But we would be denying ourselves, we'd be fools, if we did not see a marked increase in spiritual warfare here at this point in the book of Acts. Because prior to this point, when any of the apostles meet a demon, they're like, oh, you come out of her, and the demon goes. And then there's all these people who are like, oh, yay, we want to be Christians, great. Only now, he casts a demon out, and it's like, boom, and you're in jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not get 200 converts. Jail. It's an uptick in spiritual warfare. And so when we find ourselves faced with spiritual warfare, we weaponize the promises of God against it through praise. And the reason I bring this up is I'm watching across our whole spiritual family an uptick in spiritual warfare. Just a boop, notch up. And that's, and that's manifesting itself, uh, Stefan, I think, in three ways. In three ways. One, discouragement and despair 
through ongoing bondage to past or present pain and trauma, like a stuckness in this thing that has happened to us that we can't escape. And I'm watching people do all the right things. They're pursuing Jesus personally. They're pursuing Jesus corporately. They've got a therapist. They're being mentored. They're doing all these things, and they just can't get out of this thing. And there's this sense of despair and hopelessness, and I'm going to be like this forever, and disappointment. And after a while, I'm like, you know, when you see it over and over again, it's, it's not just accidental. In other words, our church is really fun to be a part of, by the way. Because the second thing we've been seeing is, is a similar discouragement and despair um, through physical illness, sickness, and death. Um, we realized this week that every family on our oversight team has been hit by some sort of physical, like pain, illness, sickness, something weird, physical happening that has led to despair, discouragement. And, I, and then I'm looking across our whole spiritual family and going, actually, that's true. Prayed with somebody last week, and they've been like sick for like three or four weeks, and they just can't shake it. But deeper than the physical, like the physical stuff wasn't as bad as this like despair and hopelessness and bleh that was coming out of it that they just couldn't shake off, right? So there's this despair and hopelessness from like inner immaterial wounds, um, despair and hopelessness from like a, a, like a, a, a physical thing. Um, and then third is like a confusion, not, not a curiosity. Curiosity is good. Doubt is, I think, good. I have a sermon series on that you can go back and listen to, but there's this confusion that after a while just starts to feel like over you know, we see people taking huge steps. In, in these other two cases, a huge breakthrough, huge breakthrough, huge breakthrough, physical, bam, emotional, bam, five steps backwards. Same thing, huge growth, spiritual forward movement, and then, but wait a minute, did God really say? There might be a fourth one, which is like succumbing to a temptation to just like live a normal East, Northeast Ohio life that's in no way contrary to like, that's in no way swimming upstream while still calling yourself Christian, but I've not fully articulated that in my head yet, so thinking about that. Um, so we see this discouragement and this confusion and this despair and this hopelessness. I mean, even for me, um, back in uh, November, December, end of November through December, um, my asthma flared up like in a crazy, crazy way. That's never happened in my life, and um, we've kind of got the symptoms managed now. Uh, but really what I found was that was a doorway for, like, the enemy to attack my hope and, like, my trust in the Lord, right? It's like, okay, the physical thing, okay, whatever, like, but there was this hopelessness that was coming through. And even, even on Friday, um, just ended up kind of encountering something very discouraging, and it just, it just took... That's the other thing I notice is like something that would be a three out of 10 discouraging has become like a seven out of 10 discouraging, right? And so this thing that I would normally be like, well, that's sad and I'll think about it for five minutes and move on. I just could not get around and I'm just stewing and I'm gross. I'm driving to a wedding rehearsal on Friday night in Youngstown and I'm thinking I had to get like my head on straight so I don't like rip these bride and groom's head off for no reason, you know? <laughs> they don't even know me really. And 
So I'm listening to some podcasts, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, let's, let's see if we can kind of worship our way through this. And so I, I got um, some worship music on, and there was a line about um, my anchor to the ground. And I all of a sudden felt like, okay, my feet are back on the ground. And then I got on the, out of the car, and I was a perfect, happy, clappy Christian for the rest of the day. No. I just kind of, there was enough of an increase in my faith and hope and trust that I could like not, just like not breathe. And so I, and that was, as I was worshiping all the way down to Youngstown is when this line kind of dropped into my heart for the sermon that we weaponized the promises of God against the evil one through praise. Like we weaponized the promises of God against the evil one um, through praise. And, and that for us has really even looked like, and we really learned this from Ken and Mary and Shay who are in the room. They were missionaries in Taiwan and um, they just kind of had a culture in their home of constant praise music going on. And that's because they lived in an apartment where everybody on all four sides and all around was worshiping demons, right? So, you know, probably a good idea, right, to have this bubble of, and so for us, it has started to look more and more like knowing when you see this thing happening to, like, bump the praise music. Not to, like, make myself feel all amped up and happy, but to just weaponize the promises of God against that. Because Scripture also says that no... uh, no weapon formed against us will remain. So the weapon of discouragement and confusion and despair and pain and hopelessness and all of these kinds of things that we see, that weapon ultimately can't remain. Why? Not because the music that we're listening is really, to is really good, but because Jesus has died and risen again and therefore has victory over these things, Right? Colossians 2 says that he has put the forces of darkness to open shame by triumphing over them in, on the cross. And because of that and our trust in him, Jesus shares his victory with us, right? And we sang a song, you know, uh, first gathering that was something like, um, we are more than conquerors even in the midst of strife. Right? Being more than conquerors doesn't mean no bad thing happens. It means that when bad things happen, we have something to reframe it with. And when we praise, it is not an ignoring of reality, but an inviting God into it. And if you miss nothing, if you, if, you, if you kind of zoned out for this whole sermon, just come back to me for a minute and just notice what this passage says. What this passage says is that in this interlock between like a broken human system and, and a spirit that's kind of manipulating it to harm God's people, that all it took was a little bit of worship and an earthquake to break them free. That's a powerful God. That's a powerful God. That's a powerful God. So Steph's going to lean in response time. And actually, we're kind of, we kind of rearranged the set just to have a little bit more worship time at the end of the gathering today, just even as a way to like live into this a little bit, not like a half hour praise and worship, just a song and a half, stay calm. Um, so. so here at Regen, we do something called response time. And, and we do that because in James 1, it talks about the fact that we don't, we want to be doers of the word. We don't want to just be hearers. And um, we don't want to be like a person who looks at their face in the mirror and then walks away and can't even remember what they look like. We think that's silly, but that's what it is when we, we hear God's word and we don't do it. Um, and so the invitation this morning is, um, you know, every time I read that book to Jack, I kind of like go do this mental exercise that I've done since I was a little kid is like, well, if I was in that situation, like Paul and Silas, like would I be singing or would I be complaining and kind of go down this like mental road? 
Um, and so we can do that and we can miss the whole point of what we're trying to do. We can focus on, you know, would I and how would I respond? And, and that's, that's not really the question today. The question today is, what is God inviting you to do in your life, in your situation, in the, in the, the brick wall that you're against, whether that's something at home or at work or inside of yourself? What is one step God is inviting you to take to praise him in the midst of that? So is it having the self-discipline to when you're driving the car to, to, turn, to stop, you know, listening to whatever podcast and turn on worship music? Is it taking the time to read a passage of scripture and meditate on that? What is the invitation? So we're going to take a moment here. The band will play, um, and then uh, I will pray for us, and we'll continue on with worship. But let's just take a moment and ask the Father to, to speak to you today and what is the invitation he's offering.